The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studios here in Beijing. I'm your host, Kaiser Guo. We've got a great show for you today. Joining me in the studio today is the inimitable Will Moss, the man behind the blog ImageThief.com and a regular on Seneca, playing today the role of Jeremy Goldhorn, who is down under. Great to see you again, Will. Good to be back. Less swearing than Jeremy. Uh, we are also joined by Kathleen McLaughlin, recently back from a reporting trip to Shaanxi Province. Kathleen writes for the Global Post. Nice to have you back, Kathleen. Thanks, Kaiser. I'll try to take up this wearing mantle as well today. Go,、oh, good, 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 good. And joining us on Seneca for the first and certainly not last time is Ed Wong from the New York Times, whose own bag carrying, own coffee ordering cousin Gary, distant cousin Gary, I'm sorry, has recently taken up residence here in Old Chokey. Welcome to Seneca, Ed. Thanks a lot, and、Hi. I hope you're going to pass along a, a, a welcome to for Gary. Oh,、well, I yeah, saw him、yeah. for the first time in Chengdu last weekend. I had never met him before. Did you guys hang?、Uh, we spent around five minutes、uh, while Xi Jinping and、uh, Vice President Biden were walking around. Did、anyway. he buy you a coffee? Uh, no coffee. <laughs> I, I was suffering caffeine withdrawal. He didn't have his coupons with him. He didn't make、one. you carry a bag for him. <laughs> right, no expired coupons. Okay, so today we've got three topics to cover. First, we look very quickly at reactions in China, official and unofficial, to the dramatic events of recent days in Tripoli, where rebel forces have put an end, touch wood, to the 42-year-long dictatorship of Muammar al-Gaddafi. Next. We'll discuss a terrific and very thought-provoking piece that Ed did in the Times very recently on the documentary filmmaker Zhao Liang and the very interesting trajectory of his career to date. And finally, we'll take a deeper look at the South-North Water Diversion Project, a massive, expensive, and highly controversial undertaking that aims to move water from the river systems of the relatively wet South to perilously arid North China. Kathleen has a series of pieces coming out. At about the same time that this podcast will be published, her pieces focus on the large-scale relocation that the project has made necessary. And by great good fortune, Ed has also written extensively on the project recently. So, let's dive in now and talk first about China and Libya. Beijing, it seems, has sought a difficult middle course between the Gaddafi regime and the rebel forces since the rebellion in Libya broke out about six months ago. On the one hand,、uh, as we discussed at the time on this podcast, China voted in favor of a UN Security Council resolution imposing economic sanctions on Tripoli, and pulled out more than thirty thousand workers from the country. Later, it abstained in a key vote to authorize military force against Libya, but immediately afterward, it issued repeated calls for ceasefires and came out very critically against bombings by Italy, the U.S., and other Western nations. Beijing dispatched a delegation. From Egypt, including the Chinese ambassador to Egypt, to treat with the NTC, the National Transitional Council, the de facto rebel authority. And when rebels moved into Tripoli, largely unchallenged from the West, and the writing appeared to be very much on the wall, Beijing seems to have accepted the new status quo. The China Daily published photos of the changing of flags at the Libyan embassy here in Beijing, and a foreign ministry spokesperson said earlier this week that China quote respects the choice of the Libyan people unquote and wants quote. 
to play a positive role in rebuilding Libya. So what's really going on here? Did China really support the Gaddafi regime, Ed? Uh, you're talking about during the latest uprising. I think that what China was trying to do was to stick to its often stated policy of non-interference in foreign affairs. That's the line it likes to use. And what they saw happen in the Arab world, I think, frightened the Chinese leaders. Um, and they didn't want to be seen supporting uh, an insurrection which over overthrows or um, would topple an authoritarian regime. Right, right, right. Is there any sense of a struggle amongst outside powers for influence in a post-Gaddafi re- regime between, say, China and the West, or any sense of jockeying pos- of p- for position between different camps? Anybody have any read on that at all? I don't. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Um, but wouldn't you be shocked if there weren't? It seems it wasn't, like there I mean, I'm kind be. of wondering if they really will be penalized for not supporting the rebels more vigorously, or if, you know, their checks will be cashed the same as everybody else's once things get going. Well, I think we can look to Iraq as a precedent. I mean, it, it might not apply here, but it's one case study that you can look at, which was in Iraq, China had signed an oil deal with the Saddam government during Saddam's years in power, and China was to get uh, production rights and development rights to an oil field in the south. And then, you know, Saddam uh, was toppled by the U.S., and then a anti-Saddam government was put into power. And uh, the oil ministry and the government there decided to honor the deal that China had signed previously with the Saddam government. And so China has started major production now at that oil field in the south. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Has anything about the reaction surprised you, or was it just sort of standard Chinese hedging and pragmatism? Yeah, that's that, how I read it. That's it how I read it, too. Me, and I, I guess maybe that's a surprise that there wasn't really a surprise to it. It felt very, I don't want to say cynical, pragmatic is the better word. but um, Yeah, I think they, I'm not sure that they've done anything much different than other nations would do as well. Stand back and see which way the winds are blowing course, and then, you know, do. place America their does bets. It all the time, right. right? So something like 30,000 Chinese personnel were evacuated? 35, 35. What were, were they oil workers? Were they infrastructure almost, almost workers? Almost entirely oil, oil related. Right. right. Uh, listen, I want to move on, though, um, because this is just such a fascinating story. Um, on Ed's piece on, on Zhaoliang. Um, we're going to look at this documentary in Zhaoliang. Uh, it was one of those pieces that you read it and you think, I mean, this really captures something to me that's essential uh, about contemporary Chinese politics and culture. Uh, so I want to a- ask Ed a bit about the genesis of the story. I mean, what inspired you to write this piece? Uh, well, I'd seen two of uh, Zhao Liang's uh, films before, uh, Crime and Punishment and Petition, and I thought they were among the most uh, aesthetically arresting and, um, and emotionally powerful documentaries I'd seen. Um, the emotional one was definitely Petition, but I, Crime and Punishment, the, um, the way he shot that and edited that, showed a very mature I'm, style. I'm familiar so. with Petition. What was Crime and Punishment about? Uh, crime and Punishment um, is about, a, it's set within a police station in Dongbei, um, in the town where uh, Zhao Lian grew up. And he, um, he went there and he, ha- he pretended he was writing a, screen, a fictional screenplay about police um, people on the border. And so they let him spend, I think he's probably spent a month or a little over a month just um, going there constantly to film. And then in the end, he cut together a documentary about life in the police station. And um, the heart of the documentary uh, consists of three long interrogation scenes um, in which they're interrogating people. They detained, um, mm-hmm. not for political purposes, just like uh, regular sort of street um, 
sort of, I mean, you wouldn't even call them criminals. Maybe they might be criminals, but they're just small, like, um, infractions. And then in some of the scenes, they beat the people they're interrogating. And in other scenes, it's just a long, drawn-out process of questioning. So it's sort of like a procedural. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a procedural. It's not really in, he doesn't really see it as an expose of sort of corruption or um, of the police. He sees it more as sort of like a study of, power dynamics um, in this small town. Did he, t- did he take a moral position on it, or did he just let it speak for itself? I mean, uh, he let it speak for itself. And I think he, um, I mean, when you interview him about it, he says that what he wants to show is sort of the way that people behave when you, they're in uniform and also um, sort of what the police are like. There's some scenes that show the police sort of when they're not really um, dealing with criminals or with crime, and they're just getting a haircut or folding their blankets, and he wanted to show sort of the way they behave when they're not in this position of power also. And they were comfortable yeah. enough with him to just let him hang around? Well, they um, he met them um, through a friend, a friend who had connections to police station, and he is from that area, um, and also he told them he was working on this fictional screenplay, so they never suspected that he was <laughs> going to make this film about them. And he, and a few months ago, he said that they he believes they still don't know that. Oh, this wow. film was made about them. And so that raises, you know, ethical questions. If they find out he might be the one in the interrogation <laughs> room. Has he right, gone exactly. home since? He has, but the station isn't right in his hometown. He comes from Dandong, uh-huh. um, and the station is closer to the North Korean border. And Dandong, by the way, right, is a city that sits on, on the North Korean border. Um, when did you actually first encounter Zhao Liang? I first met him at a dinner uh, last November. I'd seen um, his, these couple of films, and... His American distributor, a uh, woman named Karen Chien, um, was at a dinner uh, here in Beijing, and she invited me to come along, uh, and so I met him there. Uh, at the time, he was very much interested um, in... He, we talked a lot about his films and about Crime and Punishment in particular, which he considers his favorite of the films he's done. Um, and at the time, he was also closely following on Weibo, sort of um, Ai Weiwei's attempts to keep his Shanghai studio from being demolished. Ah, ah interesting. And Ai Weiwei will figure again in this story in just a little bit. Uh, before I do that, I mean, before we talk about that, did you feel that Zhao was in some sense representative of a position or a predicament that artists and intellectuals frequently find themselves in China? It was, I mean, this was, to me, the, the, the meat of your story. And did that come across in your early encounters with him? Uh, did he... What made him an interesting subject was after I did a couple of hours of interviewing with him, it became apparent that he had a lot of thoughts about the role of an intellectual in China, not just about the filmmaking process, but about what an intellectual should represent, um, the type of stands that they should take, and and their relationship with the system. I don't think he himself um, had necessarily like a very dogmatic or uh, stand that he was trying to propagate, but... He was trying to deal with a lot of these issues that arose on a case-by-case basis, like at what point to work with the system, at what point to compromise with the system, and then at what point to remain independent and and do art outside of the system. Well, and talk- that, that's, that really describes the arc there. I mean, that's the essential tension that carries the story and makes it so compelling. Well, talk about that. Talk about his trajectory as a filmmaker, because you talked about petition and crime and punishment, both of which were done outside the system, and then his position as a filmmaker in society changed. And, 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 and that's been instrumental, I think, in, in, in where he is now. So talk about that a bit. Well, he made five films. Um, he went to the Beijing Film Academy in the 1990s. And then afterwards, he made five films that were done outside the system. He never submitted them to censors. He didn't register them. Usually the first step 
if you want to be work within the system is when you make a film, you register the film with the film bureau, and then they look at the script or they look at your outline if it's a documentary, and then they look at cuts or edits of the film later on. And then eventually, if it's approved, then the film gets shown in theaters, which is ultimately the goal of many filmmakers. Um, but independent documentarians or filmmakers can't get their films shown in theaters because um, their films haven't been approved by the film bureau. Uh, and so you can easily make an independent documentary or a fiction film here, but the problem is the distribution process. Um, no one uh, in China or very few people in China ends up end up seeing your work. Uh, it might get a lot of buzz at film festivals, um, and it might get a lot of critical acclaim in the West. But it's going to be seen by seventeen guys named Dieter. All wearing black turtlenecks. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and then but then a lot of the filmmakers you meet in China, they say they make they want to make their films for Chinese audience. It's the it's their fellow countrymen or a country woman uh, whom they would want to see the film. So that's kind of what happens to him, right? Because he made the AIDS documentary together, but that one he was sort of co-opted into the system. Right. Um, I don't know if I would use the word co-opted. I mean, there, it's sort of, I mean, it's sort of a complicated process by which he came to make it, which is that there was this well-known filmmaker, Gu Changwei, um, who yeah, makes, cinematographer. Very. I mean, he was right. Zhang Yimou's cinematographer. Yeah, he's shot time. beautiful movies, and he's yeah, he very shot Peacock, for example. I did the subs to that movie. Actually. Right. I think he directed Peacock. Right. He did. He, right. Yeah. And so he's very admired uh, among among people uh, by people like Zhao Liang and that generation of younger filmmakers. And so he was. He had met Zhao Liang at a film festival before in Hong Kong, and so he approached Zhao Liang to make a documentary that would uh, one talk about the making of a fiction movie that Gu Chang was making, but also have other elements in it where there would be interviews with people with HIV AIDS. And the end point of the documentary is that it would be shown as a public service or documentary announcement in theaters by the health ministry and on TV. So the documentary itself is still on a, is on a subject that's somewhat sensitive, and it, it's still a socially committed documentary. But in making it, you go through a process where you have to submit it to censors. Um, and so that's the, that's the part of which he had to negotiate with officials and sort of go through that, a whole process that he had he never had, been through. I don't before. know if it was in your story or one of the other stories about this we read, but he said that his the film had to go through the health ministry. It had to go through the central propaganda department. It had to go through SARFT, the state administration of radio, film, and television. It's hard to imagine anything surviving, you know, Many transit through those three bureaucracies, mm-hmm. uh, right. you know, intact. Well, he says, right, it wasn't exactly the way he went. He said there weren't a lot of major cuts he made to it. Um, but because the film had the backing of the health ministry, then that already gives it somewhat of a green light among the other government agencies. Um, he talked about one cut, for example, that was made, which was he interviewed, there's very, this powerful interview with a woman in the film who's a prost- it's clear she's a prostitute. And she talks about how she has HIV AIDS, but he can't say anywhere in the film that she is a prostitute or exactly how she contracted the disease. Um, and because we are about in such profession. deep denial about the, the existence of them, <laughs> right? You know, um, there are masseuses, for example, or there uh, right. they run hair salons, as you know, right. so. scissorless of the scissorless <laughs> sort. Right. Um, I think that what's interesting, I mean, is of course his encounter with Ai Weiwei. Um, you know, we're all familiar with this phenomenon whereby more radical activists often, you know, go after those that they perceive as compromising or pursuing a more pragmatic path, and they direct their fire at them, sometimes even, you know, before they'll turn their guns on on the people who 
are, are perceived as the real enemies. But um, your piece talks at some length about how Ai Weiwei went after him after he pulled his film petition from a film festival in Australia. Uh, what did he have to say about his attack by Ai Weiwei, where he was, I guess, ambush interviewed on, on video, and that, and that went all over the place? Well, he wasn't that comfortable talking about it when, he, when I asked him about it. And if you look at the video, you can see how uncomfortable he is at the moment at which he's attacked by Ai Weiwei. I mean, he was good friends with Ai Weiwei at one point, um, and then they sort of uh, they sort of just drifted apart. I don't think there was any... I didn't get the sense there was originally any sort of political motivation for their... Um, for, you know, a lessening of their friendship. But then there was this incident that took place. Um, and when I asked him about it, he said that uh, not everyone can do the things that Ai Weiwei does and not everyone can um, can take the stands that Ai Weiwei does. And he said that, um, this isn't mentioned in the article, but he uh, told me that Ai Weiwei always wants people to behave the same way he does or to take the same sort of uncompromising standing. And he just says, realistically, not everyone in China can do that. That's right. Did he express any regret over his decision to pull out of Melbourne? He did express some regret because he said that, I think he made the decision as a practical choice. He was in Thailand at the time, and he hadn't seen, maybe he hadn't seen a lot of the dialogue or conversation that was taking place here um, about uh, the film. I mean, the background, too, is that he was made to pull, or he was asked to pull the film out because it was a film about Rabia Kadir. Well, because there was a film about Rabia Kadir showing there, right? Showing there. That was made by um, a non-Chinese documentarian. Um, And this was shortly after the ethnic riots in uh, 2009. So it's just the association. Right. It was just the fact that there were these uh, Chinese films. And so the Chinese government asked him in Jiajiangke, who's also very well-known and respected filmmaker, to pull their uh, films out of the festival. Am I, am I remembering correctly that it was actually Jia Zhangke who reached out to him and suggested that he do this? Yeah, apparently the way he tells, Zhao Liang tells the story is Jia Zhangke got a call from the film bureau um, and was asked to pull his film out. Then they asked him if he knew this other filmmaker named Jia Liang, who's not that well-known. I mean, he's like a small filmmaker compared to Jia Zhangke. And Jia Zhangke and Jia Liang had lived across from each other in a hallway um, when they were ta- attending the Beijing Film Academy at mm-hmm. the same time. So they were friends, and so uh, Zhang Ke called up Zhao Liang and told him what was going on. And then um, the way Zhao Liang tells it is that um, he asked Jia Zhang Ke what uh, Zhang Ke was going to do, and uh, his friend told him, I'm going to pull out. So then Zhao Liang says, okay, I'll pull out also. So, hmm. uh, in, in your piece, there was another, I think, a really poignant uh, bit where Zhao remembers a middle school teacher who told him that he was a stone with sharp edges and that they'd get rounded off as he matured. And he said, though, that his sense was that he'd only gotten sharper. Well, what about now? I mean, do you think that he's he's feeling grounded a little more smooth these days? I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, he um, obviously he decided that um, to work with the government on this last film. But like, but I think the um, in my interviews with him, it didn't seem like he was this to- completely anti sort of government person or anti-party person either. Like, he believes there are nuances and different points of view and different stands taken by people who are within the government or within the party and that you can work with some of them. So, In um, fact, he says that, you know, it's sort of their duty is intellectual uh, because there are two factions and you need to support the liberals, essentially. Right. Well, he, I thought that was fascinating. He also said that, uh, that you know, what... To paraphrase, but didn't he express some sentiment like, you know, an intellectual or public intellectual needs to be heard, needs to have an audience? He sounded like a rationalization. 
Right. I think I don't think it's a rationalization because I think a lot of artists feel that way. Like he he was saying, art only counts if um, if you have an audience. And then he in the interview, and I didn't have this quote in the story, but he said that. Oh yeah, if you're um, he cited. Um, the French artist Duchamp, and he said yeah. Duchamp had once said that there was like if you have if there's an artist sort of in deepest Africa who makes like the most beautiful piece of art in the world, but it doesn't get out to the outside world, then it's basically as if the artist hadn't exist. It's the tree exist. that fell in the forest, right? right exactly, yeah. and um, so I think that's the main question, like especially in a mass media industry like film, um, is where the product is supposed to reach a large audience. Is if you can't reach that audience, then what do you do? So you wrote in your article about how much importance the government puts on film as 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 a medium, uh, as a propaganda, propaganda tool, medium, as a right. way of, of influencing people. So that really makes the choice for filmmakers in China pretty stark, doesn't it? I mean, you you there doesn't that doesn't leave much room for a middle ground. Film's always going to be under so much scrutiny that it seems like you're completely inside or completely outside. Is there a middle ground there? I think there is. I think that if you look at his um, film together, uh, which I don't think is the best of his films, but it has moments that reflect his aesthetic. I mean, it was made, it's made as a propaganda film because it's supposed to be, the health ministry wants this film to sort of, um, you know, show that people with HIV AIDS are regular people. Also, it wants to stop discriminate or help end discrimination of that. So the film as a means of propaganda has a, has a good, like it's, there's a good purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, no disgrace in, in having taken part in that. Right. Um, the, you know, the thing, the questions that arise are like wh- whether the parts that get censored out compromise the film um, or whether the idea that you have to make it as a propaganda, sort of more as a public service or propaganda film, whether that aesthetically compromises the film. And I think that several people I talked to about the film said it's a lesser film compared to his other ones because of things like you know, the use of um, really sappy music that he has. And also there's interviews with like, there's an interview with Zhang Ziyi, which seems a little bit out of place compared <laughs> to the rest of the A little dazzle factor. Did you get, get a the box of, office. As to whether He's or not everywhere. he would go right. outside the system again? Will he make another film outside the system? Well, he says that his next film is going to be a film about where he wants to travel around China with um, artists and intellect. He says... Um, he told me that his next film will be a sort of like a road movie um, documentary where he wants to travel around China with um, artists and intellectuals and get their thoughts on China today. And it's going to far-flung corners like Tibet and Xinjiang. And he's been he's gone to several um, countries and film conferences outside of China to look for financing, and he wants to make it outside of the state system. So I, I guess one part of the the, the I didn't quite figure out was the process by which he was brought in from the cold after petition. He was hiding out in Tibet. Uh, I mean, did he suffer for this? I mean, I know he was being sort of followed around by goons. Right. He but. said friends told and family told him that there were security officers looking for him, that people, um, some officers had gone to his hometown and asked about him. Um, and he went to Tibet, turned off his phone. And then when he came back, he says he never actually directly spoke to any government official or representative of the government about petition. Like, no one ever confronted him about it. And it might be because he was gone for a while, and it, or it might be... Um, I mean, one thing he, he says is he thinks it was too small, that it never gained enough of an audience. If it gained a larger audience... Beyond um, the 17 guys in the turtlenecks. Right, exactly. <laughs> if it gained, I mean, it showed a con, which is impressive, but it didn't get a lot of, you know, hu- it didn't get huge distribution outside of 
China even. So um, it never got picked up by a. It got picked up. It does have distributors, but oh, it, that's right. But right. it didn't show why it didn't Guaranteed show widely, like in theaters all across the U.S. Or um, it's um, it has a French producer. It's got distribution in France and other countries. Um, but the uh, but he still stayed like a small time filmmaker after that. I guess before we leave off, I need a better sense of this guy. I mean, his personality. What was what's he like? If you had to sort of describe him as a, a person, soft spoken. Is he he like- is soft spoken. Um, he. Uh, he talks slowly. He thinks a lot before, you know, he answers. Um, he, I, he's very much rooted in sort of the artist world of Beijing. He lives in this large loft space in Taochangdi, which is where Ai Weiwei has a studio. Right. Um, you can tell he's sort of... Might be awkward now. <laughs> right. It might be. I, it's curious. I don't know what his exact relationship... That was with my next question. Weiwei yeah. these days. Like, um, I mean, he... I think he's obviously... They, they might still be friends. They... I think he still has some has respect for Ai Weiwei. Like like I was saying when I first met him, he was following very closely Ai Weiwei's Weibo um, posts about the destruction of the Shanghai student, how Weiwei was trying to organize this big crab dinner in Shanghai to protest that. And he and Zhao really Lang seems very very much into um, sort of following the ins and outs of that. Well, very good. I mean, I, I if if any of you out there by chance have not read it, it ran in Sunday Arts. Is that right? Uh, in the Sunday, in the foreign section, it ran on the start on the front page and then jumped into the foreign section. Okay, okay, great. And that was Sunday, right? Right. It's part of a series of stories we're trying to do this year, looking at uh, forms of culture in China and the interaction between the state and culture. Well, we really look forward to the rest of that series. That's going to be let's, great. Let's put a link up to that story on the Seneca page. Absolutely, we sure will. Um, let's move on to our next topic right now: the South North Water Diversion Project. You open a Chinese newspaper on a typical summer day here, and this this year, mind you, and it bursts not, into flames. Has not been a typical <laughs> summer, right? right, right. Um, you are apt to see stories of drought and of flooding in China, often on the very same page. The reason is really pretty simple: um, you've got hot, dry pressure, high pressure in Central Asia that draws the summer monsoons northward, where they deposit their moisture over the whole southern part of the country usually dropping most of it by the time they reach a line that stretches roughly from the Huai River to the Qinling Mountains, roughly along the 32nd uh, parallel, or the second, 32nd um, uh, line of latitude. Uh, this is the traditional dividing line uh, between north and south, the wet rice agriculture that dominates the south, the dry wheat agriculture of the north, the rice-eating people versus the noodle-eating people. Uh, this, of course, has been an exceptionally wet summer up here in the north, but uh, North China, as Ed very elegantly put it in the lead of a piece he published in the Times in July, is dying. So the engineers who run this country saw what they thought was an obvious solution. Um, Ed, talk talk a little bit about the historical origins of this. I mean, I'm if I remember correctly, this came from some sort of off-the-cuff utterance that Mao Zedong made. Right. He said that the North, I mean, I'm paraphrasing him here. I don't remember his exact words, but that the North is dry or has a little water, and the South has is abundant in water. So uh, the North should borrow a little bit from the South. Um, and he wasn't talking about, you know, guys like carrying buckets, right? Right. Well, who knows what he was thought, talking about? I mean, that's part of the <laughs> questions. Like, would it, how who do people knows? interpret? I mean, this is part of the mystery China is how lower-level officials interpret these utterances from the top leaders. But um, people talked off and on about this water project, sort of diverting water, from the Yangtze up to the north for a long time. And then I don't think it was until recent years when it actually um, became uh, feasible in an engineering sense to 
create these canals. And also, I think the desperate, like the North became a lot more desperate in recent years. The water tables fall in drastically. How, how bad is it right now in, in North China? What's the water situation? Well, in, in Beijing, it's, um, it's below what uh, there's a standard that the UN has adopted uh, that was created not by uh, people or scientists in the UN, but by people outside. But the UN's adopted it. And Beijing so thirty thousand metric tons. Per so it was a thousand cubic meters per person right. was the cutoff level for water scarcity, and Beijing currently has a hundred cubic meters per person. I right. mean, between what that means, like a from what I hear, which yeah. sounds okay. by that measure pretty low. Right, and a little bit five hundred's the cutoff for like drastic or yeah. severe water shortage. Urge to fill yeah. my bathtub and start stockpiling water. <laughs> right, and then the you know the as. Uh, the Chinese middle class grows, and as um, wealthier Chinese look look for leisure activities, and there will be more water, like golf courses, golf things courses. like that. Um, you know, car wash, car washes, like all of that will consume a lot more water. Got to keep those Cayennes clean, you know. <laughs> um, so, Kathleen, there are obvious comparisons to be made between this project and the other massive, controversial hydrological project out there, the Three Gorges Dam. Uh, this seems to outdo that project along almost every dimension. Uh, I mean, the cost of it. Ed, you had a, a number attached to this, didn't you, or somebody? Sixty-two billion, $62 billion dollars yeah. was it? Against which was like right. twice, twice fifteen th- for the Three Gorges. Yeah, no one knows the exact. No one knows the exact amount of the Three Gorges Dam. It's somewhere from right. thirty to. You don't 40. have a thought for right. it. <laughs> <laughs> it but I mean, obviously, I mean the 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 cost of it, just you know, uh, in terms just surely of, of money, the number of people who face relocation, also just massively more than Three Gorges. Uh, even the ecological cost, I think, the I mean, people are, are I don't reckoning. Think the relocation is actually less than Three Gorges. You're writing a lot about the it's relocation. A, it's double the number of Three Gorges. Wow. Oh, it's double. Yeah, double. yeah, the Three Gorges was initially 1.5 million people, mm-hmm. um, and they have now said they're going to relocate another half a million because of all the landslides the 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 reservoir has caused. So it'll be two million. Now, this project they're doing in Shanxi alone, which isn't any other provinces affected by the water diversion project, is three million people. Wow. We're talking about Shanxi, actually, the two the, the A Which one, I right? always mispronounce. But, Sorry. So it's not Shanxi, but Shanxi. <laughs> Shanxi is, you know, where uh, the provincial uh, capital is, Xi'an. Right. It's the pretty one That's of the, the two. One, right? Yeah. So you don't like the yellow hills in Shanxi? Yeah, they're you know they're interesting. Not they're very quite as dry. pretty. They're very yeah. dry. You get a good right. sense of the drought there. So right. it's four times the cost. It's relocating twice the number of people. The question that comes to my mind is, will it work? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's... I don't think anyone can believe they're actually doing it. But, I mean, Ed's been there. I've been there. They're doing it. You can see it. What they does are it look like? I mean, the earth... Where, what I saw was on the Han River, which is a tributary of the Yangtze, right? right. It, earth movers literally re-channeling, moving the river around, and then building water treatment plants along the river so that they can clean it up because they want the they want to send clean water to Beijing. And you said there were a lot of signs all over the There's, place. Said, the mountains have the these big banners written across them, you know, come together, send clean water to Beijing. And so they're doing the water treatment plants. Part of the reason for the relocation— This is the middle route, right? Yeah. This is, okay, so wait, let's, let's, let's talk about these routes first. Yeah. There are three routes to the thing. One of them basically traces the eastern route, traces, uh, it parallels the Grand Canal, essentially, and the terminus is Tianjin, right? The middle route comes from the middle stretch of the Yangtze and the Han River. Uh, it goes north from Sichuan through southern Shanxi and into... From Wuhan, Wuhan up through. through. Oh, right, yeah. right, right, And to, to Beijing. And then there's a western route, too. Can right, that's in theory, so yeah. you, do you want to talk about that? I don't know the Western <laughs> right. route. Yeah. The Western route is just one that's a pipe dream right now, which okay. is 
it would go from the Tibetan plateau. A pipe dream, so to speak. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, um, Tibetan so plateau. right now they think that it's unfe- scientifically um, <laughs> not feasible. So it, it's literally a pipe dream right now. Um, <laughs> no, no, wait a minute. This amuses you? Let's <laughs> explain, please. Well, I mean, people said for how many decades that the Three Gorges Dam was scientifically unfeasible, and now they're mo- moving another half million people because their homes are falling off the mountains. Good Lord. Because the dam right. has displaced the earth. I mean, these things are not scientifically feasible, and yet they do them. And that's what's so interesting. I mean, I, I, we heard about this water diversion project for years and years and years, and I always thought, oh, that they'll never do that. They're doing it. Right. It's about to go online in 2013, 2014. In fact, it aimed at 2008 to actually have water reaching Beijing by 2008. I remember seeing on the West Fifth Ring Road uh, – a, they were they were laying down enormous pipe. I mean these gigantic. I mean really the, the pipe up there you could you could stand up in. Uh, and I asked the guys what this was for, and they told us this was the the northern terminus of the water relocation project of the Nanshui Bei Diao. Hmm. What part like, of what? What part of Beijing was that in? It was in western Beijing, hmm. West Fifth wow. Ring Road. Right. right. What was interesting to me is that the I mean there's a lot of right now they're starting to relocate the people in this in the in the middle section they're starting to relocate these 3 million people which part of it I was saying earlier it's it's really I mean they can make a case that a lot of these people need to be moved because they are living in mountains where the mountains are falling apart and the houses are cracking and falling off because they're still having aftershocks from the 2008 Sichuan earthquake they're Good very Lord. close to Sichuan and they were actually affected by the earthquake so there are safety issues there's landslides there's mudslides but it's pretty clear that the main driver is the water project. What's interesting to me is that that people, they're not so much angry or upset at the fact that the river is going to be sent to Beijing. They're more upset about the fact that they're going to lose their land because they're being mm-hmm. moved away from the river, mm-hmm. off of their farmland, and that they're not being compensated for it. So they're not, they don't have a territorial kind of protective claim to the water, which I found curious. I thought I'd find that there. But you have this more like, how are we supposed to make a living now? And now I've got a bank loan. I've never had a bank loan in my life. And I've got to buy a new house and pay it back. And I don't know how to make a living. So it's really these more practical issues. It's not so much a territorial issue. And people were, they they almost seemed to be kind of okay with sending the water to Beijing. That didn't seem to be a huge... That wasn't the issue. It was the more immediate pressing issue. It was issue the more immediate, like, how are we going to survive? Where are we going to live are we going to have a house? You know, really basic kind of you, stuff. You draw a really interesting contrast in your piece between cities that are sort of model relocation cities and some that are abject failures. Do you want to talk a little bit about what some of the factors are that, that, that determine whether a relocation effort seems well, to succeed or, or, or not? It, and these are really close by to one another. Right. They're right next door. I mean, they're, they're, they look like – if you see them, they look like they might be part of the same village. But then you quickly realize that it's two different villages. And, and one of them is Qian, which is the, the model village. Mm-hmm. And they have these beautiful new white farmhouses. And every journalist who goes there and, and meets the government gets taken there to see the new houses. The Potemkin village, right. Exactly. Right. And then if you, if you drive five minutes – to the other side, you meet the people who've been complaining about the project, and they're they are being moved into a six-story walk-up with no toilets and no public center and no road and no farmland, and they had to get rid of all their animals. They don't know what they're going to do. And they're faced, just, forced to take out a loan. All forced the low to take out a loan, and then they go work to build, you know, tunnels or on the diversion project, and they don't know what they're going to do. Is there resentment against the people in the model village? I mean, if you sort of yes. look out the window and see the model village there, do you start? 
thinking nasty thoughts. Absolutely. And that was just built as, would Kaiser said, a Potemkin village to show people. Um, you know, there's all sorts of, I mean, you go out in the countryside, you hear all sorts of theories, right? One of them is that it was, first of all, this village last year did, in fact, have a very deadly landslide. I believe, I, I believe five people were killed. Um, from a landslide in that village last year. And so I think that it was a selling point that this is the safety, poverty alleviation plan. We're going to bring you down out of the mountains. We're going to give you these great houses. At the same time, the people in the villages around told us that the people in that village were very compliant. They did what they were told from the higher-level government officials. Mm -hmm. They didn't complain, and so they got the good deal. Uh, I thought that one of the things that was really interesting to me was um, the rationale for these relocations in Shanxi that you write about seems to be all about making sure that clean water gets to Beijing. I mean, we're moving these people away so that their their you know, runoff isn't going to pollute the water. Um, it seems to me that there's sort of shifting cost from the balance sheet, from the you know sort of from environmental costs to you know very uh, equally uh, heavy human costs. Uh, is is there a calculation that simply the human cost is easier to absorb, easier to manage? I can't tell you what the rationale is. What's the, one of the things that I find so fascinating is that um, all of these people who are being re- relocated are being pressured to take out home mortgages to buy their new houses. So the, the relocation funds pay for about 10 to 15% of the new house, and then they have to take out a bank loan. But most of them lose their farmland, so they don't have a way to make a income. You also, did, did you, you wrote that at least one person you spoke to had said... You can't even buy a place at this point because yeah. of property inflation. Right. Well, that was actually so. Uh, during this trip, uh, this is kind of an epic journey I did. <laughs> Went from uh, Xi'an, drove from Xi'an to Chongqing. So checked out first the, the, the new relocation project going on because of the water diversion project and then ended in Chongqing to look at the tail end of the Three Gorges relocation and what mm. has happened. And the, the kind of the, the driver behind this whole series was um, a report this summer that uh, forced relocations and land seizures in China are the number one cause of social unrest. And that was, yeah, that was what I wanted to talk to you about. I mean, because this is such a flashpoint. What do they keep calling it? A spike point. Spike point, right. Uh, yeah, spike. the center that did this report sounds kind of dodgy. I've never heard of them. But if you look around, it makes sense. I mean, this is sure. what people complain about. I mean, this right? is what they set themselves on fire over. Yeah, I mean, they, yeah. and there was a guy actually in, in uh, An Kang who set himself on fire recently during the, the water diversion. An uh, Kang is so one of the cities in, in Xi'an, or in, yeah. in, in Shanxi that you centered this yeah. story you on. Wrote, you wrote something else that was interesting because you said, you know, the initial plans always look quite reasonable and then it all goes wrong in practice. Why does that happen? Well, I mean, it's the same story we always hear in China, right? The, the, and, and whether or not it's true or this is what people believe, but things from that start from the higher government level, or they're fair and they make sense and, and they're engineered well, and then they break down bit by bit by bit. The lower they go down and the corruption eats away at things and local officials take their cut. I mean, it's hard to say. The, the one thing that was interesting um, about these villagers who are being moved, uh, moved now and taking loans is a lot of them told me we were told we would get an interest-free loan. Not a low-interest loan, but, an interest but free zero loan. interest. And they were these were people speaking in separate locations. They didn't hear each other talking. They all said this. We were told no interest. And then we signed the documents, and now we get... All, all and now interest. they're paying only not, interest. Not, not That's all they're paying. All. Right. So it's breaking down. And, you know, just that... At this point, the project just started recently, just in the, in the last few months, the relocation part of it. And to have it start breaking down this early is interesting. If you remember the Three Gorges, 
the resettlement, they did huge propaganda on that in the beginning. And you didn't start to hear so many of the complaints until it was kind of deep in and then realized that the, that the project was breaking down. Do you sense that there's been any learning from the, the experience of the Three Gorges? I mean, one would think uh, in, in a rational world that you would look at some of the problems that were encountered I don't mean to laugh. I'm sorry. But learning, they may have learned to be, to be more quiet about it because they've been so quiet about this project. You know, they're moving three million people and they're not really talking about it. I mean, it took. They didn't publish the plan, the actual oh, relocation you've put an plan. Oh, you that now, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> they didn't publish the actual relocation plan online on the on the provincial government website until the end of July, after huh. they had already started it. They're not talking about it. Whereas if you remember the Three Gorges, it was huge propaganda. They Absolutely. were really building it up. This is going to be great. It's going to be great. So maybe the lesson they've learned is to not promote it so Don't much and not hype people's right. expectations so much. Right. What's interesting is also rail. scientists that I talked to said there wasn't a lot of talk or a lot of debate about the scientific basis or merits of the project either. Like for the Three Gorges, there was actually much more debate and dialogue about it behind the scenes before it got before it got started, then there was apparently uh, for this water diversion project. Do you so think the like, water diversion project is scientifically dodgier than the Three Gorges Dam? I have no idea. Like, you're asking so someone. So, oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I am curious so. about that, though. I, that's let's uh, like let's at least know. talk about, you know, the, the extent of opposition that's coalesced around this issue. Uh, in Ed's piece, you know, he talked to environmental activists, or I'm not sure you talked to her, but Dai Qing. Um, yeah, has been, Dai Qing, yeah. Dai Qing has been mm-hmm. very, uh, right. she, she has been a very vocal critic. How much criticism is being allowed? Are there NGOs or there informal civil societal organizations that are coalescing around this issue? Well, Dai Ching was very outspoken, um, and uh, she said it was. I mean, she like she said it was like a product of the totalitarian government here. Right. But, but for those who don't know, Dai Ching was also an outspoken critic of the Three Gorges that's right. as well. Right. But then some other environmental groups I spoke to down south, they didn't want to come out and uh, state their state an anti-government position so strongly. So they were saying. Um, scientists in one NGO I spoke to there by the Han River, which you visited, Kathleen, they said that they just wanted more studies done um, before this project would go forward. And obviously, it's too late. Like, studies aren't going to be done. Um, but they, their main complaint was that there weren't enough studies to actually figure out whether this would be feasible. I think if you spoke with them very far off the record, they would be opposed to the project because I think um, these are scientists and intellectuals in the South, and they actually don't see the need to be uh, moving water from the south. Right, and they gain very little by this. I mean, and and the destruction, I mean, we're we're talking about possibly seeing some of these river systems become unnavigable, seeing some of these river systems actually lose a considerable part of their flow, uh, and and the the environmental consequences uh, to wildlife there, to... Uh, e- whole ecosystems, n- not to mention, you know, agricultural livelihood. Uh, and, and this middle channel still is pretty wild. I mean, if you've been to that part, it's, it's those mountains. The really, Qinglings, it's yeah, still yeah. a gorgeous, Absolutely. wild part of China. So, so uh, both of you have written about some of the risks facing the project, issues with pollution, issues with the stability of the source water, and whether and how long that's going to last, issues with the fact that the South recently isn't as wet as it used to be. Um, So here's a question. What does it mean for Beijing and the dry north more broadly if this project fails? We're f***ed. No more golfing. How about that? I I wouldn't have any problem at all with (laughs) that. But, you know, it was interesting because I got my water bill the other day, and I think we were in for something like 
and whatever the building period is, like a quarter of 20 tons of water in my house because I have a three-year-old who gets a lot of water. Who spends a lot of time. You know, it was like 360 yen or something like that. Whatever it was, it was not an absurd amount of money compared to what you'd pay, say, in Singapore where I used to live or in California where I grew up for water. You know, if nothing else, if this project doesn't fly, water is going to, I mean, you know. It's going to get pretty. Right. I mean, it's going to get pretty dear. Right. And there should, and maybe that's the, that's part of the answer is like, I think market forces are the things that will push people to conserve um, resources. Like if electricity was more expensive or water, water was more expensive, not just here in China, but in the U.S. and, and I remind you, you work for the Times, not the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> <laughs> well, and if gas was more expensive, I could have gotten here faster tonight because there wouldn't be so many cars on the road. Right? I think we could all get behind that. But is there any sort of meaningful push towards water conservation? I know. I mean, I can, Not I can that I've seen. from experience, I know that, you know, with my two young children, they are constantly coming home with these sort of, you know, uh, with, with these little mantras that they're chanting about us saving water. And they, they, they're quite, I mean, it's good. I, at least there's, they're mindful of this. Yeah, does it, change your, house, does it though, change your household behavior? Yeah, of course. All right, I mean, just they, seriously, it, it actually does. I mean, my wife is always encouraging me, you know, Turn the tap off when you, while you're shampooing. I mean, there's no Which need for you. For, it's a good thing too, right, because it takes me like long, three hours. Long, long, yeah. long showering very process good idea. there. Right. I've got a lot of hair. Um, uh, what I really want to know is: Have the primary sponsors behind the project? Um, have the planners? Have they been mindful of the critics? Are the, are they engaged in dialogue? Are they making any kind of accommodations? Are you aware of any uh, changes that they've made? I mean. Is we there seen, a dialogue? I mean, see, that's I'm not. Well, I mean, that look, look, heard. You, you see things like, um, you know, the Nujang dams in, in, in Yunnan, they were stopped because of civil society, because at least they were able to enlist uh, people quite high up in the Central Committee to come, come out and, and, and say no. I didn't run across any examples in my reporting um, of any of particular instance where they changed um, an aspect of the project. But then again, it's both routes are very long and it goes through a lot of localities and there might have been negotiations. I do. I did hear that um, from people down in Wuhan that officials in the provinces were in negotiations with central officials to get compensation for the water that, that they were sending from their provinces up north. So there is this like protest by other government officials, um, lower level ones, saying we don't want our water being sent over, or at the very least, if our water is sent over, give us some money for it. What I think is interesting is that, well, first of all, the Three Gorges was so high profile, and everyone had heard of it. It was a big tourist spot, so the world was very, very interested in it. And and so there was this civil society from around the world that kind of coalesced ah, around that, that project. We this haven't part, seen that. Well, the Han River, where I was, nobody goes there. Right. It's so but remote. I mean, are, is There's no NRDC aware of this? Are, are you know? Um, I couldn't other... find. I couldn't find people who were. Canals I don't know if do I'd not capture the imagination in the same way that dams do. Jam, dams are. In, I mean, anybody who's ever seen a really big dam firsthand knows that they are awesome things. And flooding, you know, thousands of years of history, and you know, wiping away cities, and yeah, it blows your mind. But this is not completely dissimilar and I just don't think that it does capture people's imagination or attention really and it's also you know you've written about it Ed it's very hard to explain right in a way it's, that interests people it's right. like well and they're moving the river well, I found both of your pieces right. ab- absolutely compelling yeah but you're some kind of point Dexter I am, I am. <laughs> I'm happy to admit that listen um, you know we we could go on, on on this for a long time it's a fascinating fascinating topic I highly recommend you read both Kathleen's pieces which are going to be coming out 
Either tomorrow or, or Monday. I right, can't which means Friday or, or Monday, but very, very soon. Uh, I encourage you to read them. And, of course, go back and visit Ed's piece, which we'll put a link to on the podcast site. But now uh, we come to that segment of our show where we each recommend something. Uh, so put your thinking caps on and tell me about something that you've read recently, some uh, movie or a documentary, huh? in keeping with our theme today. Uh, something that, that's really impressed you. It doesn't need to be Can music. I make a completely bleeding heart recommendation Absolutely. that has nothing to do with that? So when I was on the road, um, I came across a puppy that some little kids were about to kill. And we saved the puppy. We rescued the puppy and had the puppy sent to the architect Neville Mars in Shanghai, who I would like to recommend for being a great human. But beyond that, there's a group in China called Animals Asia. Their mm-hmm. website is animalsasia.org. And they gave me lots of good advice on what to do and options and things like that. Um, their initial purpose, the woman who founded them is seriously badass. She saves bears. Wow. Um, but they also do tons of education with um, Chinese people and just ethical treatment of animals, which, you know, more and more people here are owning pets and, and want to be responsible pet owners. So um, I think they're doing a really good job with that. So I'd like to recommend them. And then also, as Bob Barker would say, spay and neuter your pet if you have one. There's too many pets here. Very good. Ed, your turn. Well, we already talked about my favorite two films by Jaliang, Petition and Crime and Punishment, but I would recommend that people go see those. Um, probably most people who listen to this podcast have never heard of them, so uh, they should go and see those. But then also in addition to that, which ties into our discussion about Three Gorges, is um, see uh, a movie by his friend Jia Zhangke, the other filmmaker who boycotted the Melbourne Film Festival. Go see what in English is called Still Life, but in Chinese it's called San Xia Hao Ren, which is Three film. Gorges, um, Good People. And it's, a, it's one of his... In, one of his two best films, in my opinion, but it's about relocation in the Yangtze River area. Great, great recommendation. Uh, I'll give a throwback recommendation since we spent a lot of this podcast talking about environmental topics to uh, our past guest, Jonathan Watt's book, uh, When a Billion Chinese Jump, which talked a lot about environmental issues all over China, including stuff related to what we talked about today. We did recommend it before. We talked to Jonathan here on the show. Many people who listen now may not have heard that. So apropos of today's discussion, check out Jonathan's book. And, um, yeah, great. It is an, a, a terrific book. And for something as long as it is, it's a really, really easy <laughs> read. It's um, no, Really, I mean, it's it's written sort of in a travelogue fashion. Yeah, it's fun. And it actually, uh, it, 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 you know, it, it's in keeping with John's personality. He's just, there's there's this sort of decency at the heart of it. And he's not browbeating, uh, except where he should be. My uh, recommendation is just, it was one of those serendipitous things. I was in the bookworm and I saw a uh, new translation of a memoir by Edmund Backhouse, who was a, a notorious figure uh, who lived in, in China during the late Qing, lived here in Beijing. Uh, I don't want to recommend necessarily Decadence Manchu, which is the, 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 uh, the, actual, uh, the, the actual memoir, but rather a book that was written some years ago by Hugh Trevor Roper called The Hermit of Peking. Uh, an absolutely terrific book, uh, one of the most entertaining history books that I've read, which really captures this individual, the times that he lived in, uh, a, 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 a tremendously wonderful read. 
What was his relationship with the Empress Dowager, Kaiser? Yeah, that was when he gets it on with the Empress Dowager. <laughs> that's, that's a topic for he another show, I think. Up. He must have made that he up. Made that up. I mean, yeah, like Flashman or something. <laughs> anyway, folks, uh, Kathleen, as always, great to have you. Thank Ed, you. we will see you again. I trust yeah, you had a fun I'd time love to here. come back. And Will, as always, we'll have you back again soon. My pleasure. And so we'll see you folks actually next week. I, I'm, I've, I've got Baidu duties, so I'll off the day off next week. If I can get Jeremy back in time, I doubt it, then he'll take over. But we may take a break next week, and we'll see you the following week. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time on The Cynical Podcast. Bye now. We'll be right back.